we need to care as much about our employees as we do about our guests. Think about it. We bend over backwards to create experiences for our guests. That's our job. Why aren't we bending over backwards to help those who help us do that? Okay, ready? This is it. This is the show. What's with the pineapple? A brand new podcast from the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association. Pineapples don't grow in Michigan. No, not native to Michigan. Let me write that down. Putting a, a hospitality spin on what exactly is going on in Lansing. Shed some light on the industry specifically in Michigan. I think we're going to have some good guests. What is with the pineapple? What's with the industry? What's going on in Michigan? We can edit this if that's not right, right? Two episodes in one month. Justin feels good. Oh, Emily. I think uh, this is going to be like the Michael Jordan flu game for me today. You're going to have to care. You're going to have to be Scotty Pippen carrying me. I am dragon. I am exceptionally tired, but I am here ready to deliver. Just like Scotty Pippen. I actually just finished that um, The Last Dance documentary. So that's a, a good reference. Everyone else in America watched that in 2020. What do you mean you just watched it? Yeah, I was busy <laughs> helping our industry. Okay, so how's your week been? It's been a very busy week, but listen, I'm tired right now. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna weave I'm gonna weave some hospitality into a parental story. Let's uh, do it. Last night, went to Detroit with my oldest daughter. She's nine. She's very into art. There is a Van Gogh exhibit in the city. It is fascinating. It's An immersive not, one. It's very immersive. Uh, it's disorienting, frankly, hmm. but it's amazing. And so I wanted to expose her to that kind of opportunity. And so we drove to Detroit, went to Jeremy Sassoon's restaurant. Our first guest ever on this podcast. Yeah, he does it right. Uh, he knows that putting the experience out there is the way to go. So we went to Townhouse Detroit, right downtown in the heart of Detroit. Avery's only been to Detroit a couple of times, so she's still amazed by the skyscrapers, if we can call them that in Detroit, you know, the skyline. Big city living. Yeah. So we we did dinner there. And instead of getting an entree, she really wanted to get bold. She went all in. So I wanted wanted to try a whole lot of things she's never tried before. Wow. Uh, so we had an interesting tasting menu for a nine-year-old. She has a, a, a pretty advanced palate, I'd say. Not a picky eater. Handled a lot of different things. A lot of different animals of the sea, Ugh. if you will. Good for her. Not uh, not my thing. No, it was it was fun though, and she she took it all. She didn't love everything, and then and then we went all in on the everything they have dessert menu, and the dessert menu was amazing. Oh, so fun. dinner ended up being a two hour experience, uh, but she loved it. It's one of those things that you know it is a night that I hope she remembers because it's going to be forever uh, in my memory. And then we went to the Van Gogh exhibit. It was fascinating, but I'm telling you, it was and I got invited somehow because of our. PR uh, firm. Shout out to Mark's Lane, who gave us this opportunity. It was, let's say, not the universe for dad and nine-year-old daughter. It was the elite art community of, of Detroit and Metro Detroit. Just fascinating people watching. And I'm pretty sure that Avery was the only kid under 18 in the, in the building. Uh, but it was a fascinating experience. She loved it. Uh, I loved it. We got home after 11, and I am now just, I'm rough, but I'm here. And we appreciate that. Somehow we tied in hospitality to that, right? That's a good story. How <laughs> long do you know how long the exhibit is? It just opening? I think it's been in Detroit for a while. It's the location it was at last night, I think is unique. And I think it's also moving to Grand, Grand Rapids. Rapids that's yeah. Right, yeah. 
Okay. Before we move into our segments, I do have a couple of housekeeping items that I want to touch on. These are not plugs. These are housekeeping items. Not plugs. We don't do plugs. Sticking by it. We do have a newsletter for the podcast that anyone can sign up to receive a newsletter, an update when we release an episode. People love newsletters. They do. Their inboxes are not over full at all. So anyone can sign up mrla.org slash podcast for all of our listeners who maybe they aren't members. Maybe they're not even in the industry. They just love hearing our updates. You can sign up on the website. Also, I want to implement a new Q&A segment which I think we should title Just Wondering with, with JW. Well, if anyone responds from this newsletter, one way or the other, one way or the other, we'll, we'll go with it. Okay. All right. You guys hear that? I need some submissions on the website. Same, same website, emerald.org slash podcast. Send us your questions and uh, we'll have Justin answer them. It's going to go great. Okay, current events, Pineapple Express. We have a lot here, probably the most that we've ever had. Still calling it Pineapple Express? Let's just go with it. Mm. So this week we uh, did release a bunch of survey data, operation survey data. We were in the field the first week of May and put that out on Monday with some pretty solid pickup. You've been doing a lot of interviews. Yeah, the media is still really interested in the state of this industry. Obviously, we were front and center during the peak COVID closure period, but there is still a lot of interest of, of how we've recovered to what degree we we've recovered. And so it's been, it's been good to have that opportunity to share where we are as an industry. The headline is a bit murky. It's, it's a little bit of both, right? It feels like a little bit like the worst of, of it is over. I've been using the analogy that if we were a patient, we would be out of the emergency room, but now we are afflicted with a whole lot of chronic conditions that we're dealing with the three-legged stool of misery. We all know that they're inflation, commodity sourcing, and workforce, the unavailability of an, an adequate workforce. And that shows up in spades in the data. So there's positive trends from where we were when we did this survey in August of 2021. But you can see that, that we're a long way back from operating normally. Operating in an environment where there's um, certainty that, that people who own restaurants, own hotels, can make decisions with clarity of what the future three, six, nine months out looks like for them. So we're not there yet. And I think that helps make the case, frankly, for what we do in the legislature of, of helping to jumpstart this industry, not through just resources immediately to save businesses, but long-term and, and trying to bring back a workforce that we need. So that's been the messaging we've been putting out there. And uh, I think it's getting some traction. Yeah. I think that's, what's different in this data compared to what we put out last August, or even through more of the thick of the pandemic is before we were painting the picture of it's really bad, open us back up, or we need this support, but now it's okay. So this is what the picture is. How are we moving forward? What's the solution now? And I think that's kind of what we've been trying to get across through this data. I can hit on a few of those highlights. Well, let's let's both hit on some things that we find interesting in the data because I think there's a few things. Yeah, so un, let's so let's start with the unsurprising portion of that. 99% of operators have increased wages over the last 12 months with 40% of operators increasing. We can just round that up to 100 probably. Right, exactly. And 80% operating with inadequate uh, labor supply to meet demand. Not again, not surprising, not surprising the impact of the, what did you call it? The three-legged stool of misery. Mm-hmm. Just trademark that. Let's put that on a t-shirt. If you want a positive spin though, 
were at you know three and five restaurant and hotels operating with fewer hours or segments than they were before, but that, that number was 18 points higher in August. That number was exceedingly high in August. People shutting down Sundays, Mondays, uh, rooms being cut off from hotels to a greater degree then than they are now. So you can see slow progress, at least in that, in that space. Definitely. I think more surprising or kind of a newer topic that we're really focusing on in the office is the inadequate affordable housing situation and how it's impacting our industry statewide. We had 60% of operators statewide say that inadequate affordable housing is a workforce challenge. And 89% of those are are hotel operators. Yeah. I I thought it was interesting in this this survey, when you break it down between restaurants and hotels, hotels are experiencing the now worse than restaurants are by and large, unless you are in the banquet segment. Banquet segment still feels, at least those who responded in that category to this survey, uh, are still having a very rough go of it in relation to where they were. But hotels feeling more acutely the labor challenges than than the industry is, and and also feeling the the housing challenges more. Uh, that may be because we received a disproportionate hotel response from high traffic areas, high tourism areas like Traverse City, Harbor Springs, Mackinac City, etc., where that issue is is really problematic. And so you're going to keep hearing more from us on that issue because I think a solution is necessary if you don't have a reliable and an affordable place to to live nearby where you work, it's going to be a, a, a pinch point long-term for the workforce, for this industry. And, you know, listen, it ties into one of our other issues on short-term rental, that the number of, of houses that have been purchased up and, have, and are just being used now as vacation properties, uh, even in areas that are not vacation destinations, is impacting the ability to have adequate housing. So, uh, work needs to be done here. We are part of a coalition here in Lansing to try to fix that. We're not across the finish line yet, but you're going to keep hearing more. Maybe the fourth leg to that stool. Oh, not yet, but, but, but trending in that direction. There's still hope. Trying to prevent it. Yes. Okay. Moving forward to uh, more headline news. No, hold on. Oh, okay. hold on. Profitability is still an issue. You cannot continue to operate in this industry forever if you are not profitable. Inflation is making that hard. Wage hot take. In, wage inflation hot take. is making that hard. These are areas where we've made some progress on the number that are profitable compared to where they were in August. The number is about 62%, but 61% still saying that are saying now that they are less profitable than they were six months ago. And without a stable, without the environment stabilizing, which it has not yet, that number concerns me, even though right now only 20% are saying that they are at risk of permanent closure in the next six months. That is a smaller number than before. <laughs> so, so in context of, of, August 2021, that's a, that's a positive sign. But when you say one in five restaurants find themselves at risk of permanent closure in the next six months, if you extract that out of the chaos of the here and now, that's insane. One in five could close in the next six months. That means that it is still a pretty dangerous environment, something we take very seriously and, and are trying to make all those in elected office uh, aware of. And do you think that that number could increase with the instability in the future? I mean, it's hard to say, but Tell me where so where some of this inflation goes. I mean, I, there's some numbers out today that I find fascinating. It, it, as bad as it is in the restaurant side, 7.2% uh, restaurant food inflation in the last month, year on a year over year basis. That number for grocery, yeah, this is both a good and bad number, is 10.4% in the last month, year over year inflation. That makes competitively restaurants seem a little bit better during a challenging time, but those numbers are not sustainable. And, and 
it is just really challenging to try to raise menu prices to meet this much overhead increase in such a short period of time. Restaurants are skittish to do it. They don't want to go that high. Those who aren't are the ones who are finding themselves in a very dangerous place. Yeah, that's a good point. So is it cheaper to eat at a restaurant right now? Depending on where you're going, it looks like it. All right. Am I okay to move on to the next headline? Okay, now we can go on. All right. So more news, Grand Rapids on Friday of last week, or in Grand Rapids, there was a Starbucks, which was the first Michigan Starbucks to vote in favor of unionization. Like I said, first Michigan location. There are 10 stores in Michigan who have been given the go-ahead to conduct these votes, more coming, um, it looks like, in June. But this is the first one that made headlines. I know that this is not a topic that we have shied away from by any means on this podcast or as an association in providing resources to our members. But what's your what's your take on this overall? Can this be the fifth leg of the stool? A lot of legs. It's turning into a bench. <laughs> a lot of legs in the stool. Uh, yeah, this one, uh, the good news, bad news is this trend on the Starbucks in terms of those locations that were filing with NLRB was was ratcheting up January, February into, into March like crazy. I think we hit 12 zero to 12 in a very short period of time. That seems to have stabilized. Mm -hmm. We don't see a rash of new locations coming. Uh, We've seen a couple of small independents have have similar issues, but that hasn't hit the next level either. That seems to have leveled off. That's that's maybe the good news. Seeing this next phase in the process, though, seeing Grand Rapids, uh, the Grand Rapids Starbucks actually take this vote successfully to unionize now puts back into the media, puts back in the plausibility, the possibility of this happening. And, and that kind of news spreads. You know, We talked about this uh, when Align Public Strategies was on, that people in the hospitality industry know each other, work together. When they are at similar events, they talk about these things. Seeing that this is a possibility might reignite this, uh, this uh, passion. And so you might see a, a rash of more coming. But you're right, 10 more have the opportunity to take this vote in the next couple of weeks. And, and there's a couple more in Michigan that haven't reached that threshold yet that, that are likely to thereafter. So, so, so stay tuned, but this was certainly a momentous occasion. All right. Next headline. Domino's has partnered with Netflix to allow ordering pizza with your mind. Yeah. You take this one. This one creeps me out. I mean, we know we have good friends at, at Domino's. We love what Domino's does this yes. one. Shout out Mike Marzano. Uh, this one you take this. I can't. This creeps me out. Okay. So to give a little bit of context, it also creeps me out. But on a on a marketing level, I always respect what Domino's does. It's always something different. So it's a partnership with Netflix to also promote to promote their pizza, obviously, but also promoting that Stranger Things is coming out with a new season at the end of the month. Do you watch the show? No. I don't either. All right. I hear Netflix is struggling. Yeah, maybe on the next, maybe the next <laughs> podcast will just be Justin's hot takes on streaming. Got a lot of thoughts on streaming. So many. No one cares, but I have a lot of thoughts of them. Uh, maybe we can get the CEO of Netflix on as a guest. No relation to the industry. Joe, can you book that? Probably outside my ability. <laughs> we'll see what we do. Noted. Okay, so back to the app. So this is an app that people can download on their phones. And essentially, it, it's an immersive experience that allows test subjects. I don't know if that's a correlation Just to like the show. Just like the Van Gogh exhibit. It's very immersive. Very immersive. And it allows them to go into the Domino's pizza place in the eighties, which is where the show is based and order pizza, but you're doing it with your mind. Here's the very creepy part is it uses, it tracks your eyes in the app to allow you to order through the app. And I actually don't, I I don't know if you're, are you actually ordering pizza like from your local Domino's? 
maybe I should have done some more research on this, but it's interesting and it caught my attention. Well, it, and that I think is the ultimate goal here for Domino's is to capture those those eyeballs and that interest capture maybe almost literally, frankly, this is that level of creepy. Let's move on because I can't think about that anymore. Now, here's a question for you. What could you do with a cash infusion of more than $100,000? How might that help your business bounce back? The Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association wants you to find out. Call the Restaurant Relief ERC Support Center at 888-371-8310. You'll get expedited filing for federal pandemic relief. Find out how much you qualify for by calling 888-371-8310 right now. Okay, let's go into our GA segment for Fork's sake, our best title today, I would say. We have a couple of big things to talk about here, and none of them are going to be about supplemental budgets. I think let's just wait to talk about that. I don't know how many more times we can summarize that we're getting close. We're just not quite there yet. All right, so moving on. Two big things to talk about in this segment today. The passage of a term limits ballot proposal. They said it could never be done. I can't believe it. It happened. It happened quick too, right? I think it had to. I think the longer that that thing sits and gets debated on the floor and publicly, people start to, uh, elected officials start getting fearful. This is not a new concept, right? The, the idea of putting some term limits reform to, to summarize essentially what it's trying to do. And there was, by the way, a, a ballot proposal trying to accomplish the same. I think the legislature has taken that off the table for them in terms of needing to get uh, these signatures to to get it on the November 2022 ballot. But essentially, it, it, it changes term limits from what is right now for members of the House of Representatives, three two-year terms, so a total of six, and in the Senate, two four-year terms for a total of eight. So if you could actually somehow strategically play it right as an elected official, you could get 14 total years in the legislature if, if, if you did everything right. It makes them more malleable, but but smaller. So now you have 12 years and serve them any way you want. That could be three terms in the Senate, uh, should you be so lucky, uh, or six terms in, in the House. I think the goal primarily more than anything else that they've been trying to they've been trying to solve for for a long time is how do you create some continuity of leadership in the house generally people smart start in the house mm-hmm. smaller districts a little bit easier lower barrier to entry to get elected to those positions but you find speakers of the house leading a 110 person caucus after being there for 2 years and then having to turn around and, and bring a new speaker in and do the exact same thing and it's very hard when there's zero continuity of, of leadership like that uh, to have good long, long-term long planning. Some speakers have done very well, but it's been a challenge to do. So having the chance for a, a someone to choose to spend their entire time in the house and not have that be something that they only do as a quick stepping stone to not miss those eight possible years in the Senate is good because you could see theoretically a speaker come in for as many as, I don't know, eight years, maybe 10 in some absurd scene, but but eight years, and and if it, presuming that that party held majority for that period of time, that that continuity of leadership allows people to get good at their job before they're term limited out, and ideally that results in in better outcomes overall, better better policy, more thorough policy than what you see right now. Sometimes feels like everyone's just on the fundraising bandwagon to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. So it's great from 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 that standpoint, from someone who sees it from this vantage point of an association who wants to work with legislators. I think if you're a voter, you still see 
term limits in place that someone isn't going to be a lifer and abuse that that opportunity because there are benefits to being an incumbent. It's a little easier to stay in office once you get there uh, than it's not. I think also it's not just uh, about term limits. There's some more disclosure that comes from legislators in this process. So legislators would need to disclose their assets, non-employment income, uh, and positions outside of state government, among other pertinent financial information. Um, so that's that's critical and important. I think that'll help voters who are going to see this on the ballot want to support it. Uh, but the opponents are going to push back pretty hard. Uh, those who helped create term limits in the first place take great pride. It's one of the strictest term limits enacted anywhere in the country here in Michigan, and they don't want to see those changed at all. And it's it's easier, you know, they say in politics, if you're explaining you're losing, is it is easier just to say you're, you're changing term limits and you're self-interested for doing so, you legislators, than it is to have a substantive conversation that we just had that I just tried to describe of, of why creating more continuity of leadership, especially in the House, is a good thing. But it's been a long time coming. My personal story is I worked for a, a senator in the uh, in the first decade of this century, and he was committed to this exact same concept, wanted to submit it. In fact, had what they call an orange back. This is the resolution that would have put it on the ballot back then uh, and wanted to submit it, wanted to turn it in. The year was 2009. And I literally grabbed the thing out of his hands, ripped it up and said, you cannot possibly think about introducing this in the position you are in. The majority of the caucuses is, is uh, at play here, and this will be used against you fairly or unfairly. And frankly, it would be unfairly because he was thinking about this purely from a policy standpoint, but politically it's challenging. And in 2009, they did not have what we have right now which is a coalition of the left and the right, both working together. Uh, former former uh, Michigan Chamber executive, Rich Studley, working with former union uh, UAW executives. I mean, it's insane to think that that's even possible. But I think both sides agree, whatever your personal policy uh, preferences are, that this creates a better environment to operate in. So when you have both sides working together, I think it's easier for all of these legislators that had to take this vote And as you said, Emily, it happened in very short order. Uh, So I think it's a safer environment for all of them. They're they're all holding hands and doing this together. We didn't have that in 2009, which is why I ripped that orange back up, Uh, uh, took a a verbal lashing from the boss at the time. I was going to say, that's a confident move. You know, I took the job seriously and uh, and it was the right move at that time because he really would have been out there alone without a defense mechanism like you have right now. And all the same attacks we talked about that might still be coming to legislators that voted for this were, were going to still come just with really, you know, no one out there actively preventing and defending. So I'm going to keep that tactic in mind for future, uh, future ideas. <laughs> uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I'll certainly be supporting it uh, in November. Do you think that the this concept and just how difficult the last few years have been with everyone working together. Do you think that that ties in at all to this kind of being able to be pushed through now in this environment? Like everyone's not working so well together. So now we can create this narrative. Well, if you give us more time where we're not having to focus on being reelected so quickly, we can work better together. Or is that a far reach of a connection? It's a good question. I think Politics is relationships, and they're 
and you saw, uh, I hate we always go back to the pandemic, but there, there was such stress put on the system and, and such need for immediate action. And what were those solutions going to be? And there were not the long-term relationships in place in a lot of places on the left and the right to be able to, to quickly come together to, to, meet, to meet the moment. And I think without blaming any individual one person, uh, no matter where you are in elected office, it's, it's that there was a challenge early on. It took a long time for Michigan to come together to do some of the things it needed to do. Hell, we're still talking about, we're not talking about supplemental appropriations today because we still don't have solutions. And it is May, late May. Over a year since we released our proposal. We are one of the last states. Not, yeah, I thought we weren't going to talk about this, but you're right. We're one of the last states still not to come together for a solution to, uh, to get some of these uh, relief dollars out the door. So I do think that this, this allows for greater relationship building. And I, I just think the last two years demonstrated very acutely the level of stress. And when you don't have those relationships, what happens? So now it'll be voted on in November on the ballot, correct? Yes. That's the process. Okay. All right. Let's move on to a hot topic. I don't know if it's, I don't know. Like the store in the mall. Wow. That's a nineties reference. Hot topic. I know a hot topic is <laughs> I had my hot topic phase. Anyway, I was just correlating it to swimming pools. I was trying to correlate like weather and swimming pools. Anyway, let's talk about swim up bars. Uh, yeah, swim up bars. Uh, legislation circulating right now about whether Michigan should become the 26th state to allow swim up bars. So it's not like we're breaking new ground here, but there's a chance for a massive development, the largest water park in the Midwest. This state needs to take tourism opportunities seriously. This is an investment uh, someone in Michigan is willing to make. We stand with them. And I think a swim-up bar is one of those luxuries, those amenities that draw people in, that would bring people in from Ohio, Indiana, and other areas to bring their families uh, here. Because if you're going to be in the pool with your kids all day, I say this from experience, having a swim-up bar is going to make that a little bit easier. So we're supporting this legislation. We want to see it get Cross the finish line. Still got a little bit of work to do, but we think we can get it to the governor before they break for for uh, summer recess. It's interesting because once we started talking about this subject in the office, I went, "Oh yeah, we don't have those in Michigan." You know, you think of Florida, or Miami, and, and you know Cancun and things like that. So I don't know. I thought it was interesting as a consumer as yeah, well. Absolutely. All right. I think that uh, wraps up our For Fork's Sake segment today. Let's move into our interview with the co-founder of Ben's Friends. Okay, Emily, we are we are moving on to the interview segment. I, I am happy that we are having this conversation today. We're going to be talking about uh, the importance of mental health in the hospitality industry, something that doesn't get talked about enough hospitality industry has the highest rate of substance abuse among all industries, according to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. 16.9% of all adults working full-time in this industry have been diagnosed with a substance abuse problem. And that was in, those stats, by the way, came in the pre-times, the before times, as we call them. The pandemic put so much more stress on those working in this industry. And it's not always clear that we have resources and support and help for those working in this industry and all the challenges that come with it that need it. So I'm really excited about our guest today. Emily, why don't you talk, tell us a little bit about him? I'll also say it is Mental Health Awareness Month in May. So perfect timing. Couldn't be more fitting. So yeah, today we're welcoming uh, Mickey Bax, co-founder and executive director of Ben's Friends. Uh, Mickey was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. Shout out. Yeah, baby. 
and uh, became interested in the hospitality industry after his first shift out in Newport Beach, California. From there, his hospitality career took him to be a general manager of Charleston Grill at Belmont Charleston Place from 2004 to 2020. We should delve into that a little bit. That's just an amazing restaurant town. It is. It is. He played an essential role in helping the restaurant become one of the most acclaimed fine dining destinations in the Michigan and in, in the nation, not in Michigan. No, Wish no it was South Michigan. Carolina, not in Michigan. But Mickey's passions extend far beyond the dining room. In 2016, he and fellow restaurateur Steve Palmer founded Ben's Friends, a support group for members of the food and beverage industry battling substance abuse and addiction. With decades of sobriety under his belt, Mickey believes that there are countless members of the restaurant industry in need of help combating the effects of alcohol and drugs, which you just touched on, Justin. And since announcing his departure from Charleston, Charleston Grill in 2020, uh, Mickey has dedicated himself to Ben's friends uh, and in his role as executive director is focused on spreading the word about Ben's friends to existing and emerging chapters across the country. So welcome, Mickey. Very excited to have you here with us today. Thank you. But I need to point out something before we start. Uh-oh. <clears throat> I'm talking to the Michigan Restaurant Association. I had two restaurants in Michigan that I am proud of and many would say were two of the best restaurants ever in the state. One was called Tapawingo, which was outside of Charlevoix, where people from Detroit flocked every summer. We were sold out every night we were open, made a lot of national attention for the Michigan chef community. And then I was a, a very central part of tribute restaurant in Farmington Hills. Uh, I opened the door, helped concept it, and ran it until the day I quit. So Detroit is close to my heart and Michigan is home. Both of those are legendary restaurants. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that as we as we get into this a little bit, because you're right, Tapawingo was just an oasis uh, in an that oasis. region. And, and Tribute was maybe the most decorated restaurant in Michigan for a, a decade straight. So I, I think we definitely need to Emily, make sure we hit on a little uh, of that before we go today. But why don't we go? Why don't we? Why don't we move a little bit to talk uh, about Ben Ben's friends and, and hear from you on on its origin story? Absolutely. Yeah. Can you give us a summary of what Ben's friends is for those that might not know? Well, since people are listening to me, they can't tell that I am not a spring chicken. I have been in restaurants when I retired 47 years, and a major portion of that was in Michigan. I got sober almost 40 years ago, and throughout my time in the restaurants, I countlessly saw people losing their lives, losing their careers, losing themselves to the bottle and to drugs. And it was heartbreaking year after year after year. And I always held in me, A, I was very open about my sobriety so people could come to me for help, but the media back then didn't wanna cover the subject. And so I moved to Charleston, again, very openly sober, while putting myself out there to help anybody in our industry that needed it. And then there were two major things that happened which led to Ben's friends. 
one in April of 16, I was hosting an event for some of the most decorated restaurant people in the country. Danielle Ballou, Danny Meyer, Nancy Silverton, Ruth Reichel, the editor-in-chief of Gourmet, and a horde of others. And I was the host for a, a brunch before we did a dinner. And that day, a young man, 24 years old, cooked a meal that every single person at the table stood up and applauded and yelled. And every chef at that table said, here's my cart if you ever move here, here, or here. It was his, his culmination of his short career. That night he went home and he drank himself to death. The same night that he did the greatest meal he'd ever done in his life. My partner, Steve Palmer, and I talked about the effect of drugs and alcohol in the industry for years. We would meet regularly and always exchange stories about another F&B person losing their life, losing their job. And we kept saying we needed to do something. The, the food and wine event really profoundly affected us because not only did Drew die, but two others died as well that weekend. And a couple of months later, Steve was opening another restaurant and he brought in a couple of chefs who had worked with him through the years to help him open it. And one of those chefs was a man named Ben Murray. And Ben Murray worked in that kitchen with two other sober chefs, never said a word about it, and went to his hotel room one night and drank and drugged himself to death. That was the beginning of Ben's friends. Steve came to me the next day, broken in tears. We looked at each other. We said enough is enough. And we decided to create a community of hospitality workers who could find some safe shelter and who could learn how to stay sober. That was six years ago. We're now in 19 towns. Uh, we've got a list of cities that want to open chapters. We're in two cities in Michigan, Detroit at the Joe in Hazel Park and in, oh my God, New Buffalo. And forgive me, my brain just went on the name of the restaurant. I think it is it Brewster's? Brewster's, yes. Brewster's Pub. Sorry, Connor, forgive me. Yeah, they actually uh, reached out to us just yesterday and said, hey, this is a really great organization. How can we work together to get the word out? And the timing couldn't have been more perfect. I said, yeah, we're having Mickey me. on the episode, the newest episode. So going to talk to them as well about getting more engagement in Michigan. But it's a difficult and sad story. But what you just shared is really the definition of seeing a problem and just grassroots doing something about it. And now you've spread to all across all across the nation. So yeah, we're pretty pleased. I, I will tell you at the first meeting in Charleston, we went to the local media and 25 kids showed up. I say kids because I'm older, but 25 people showed up, bartenders, line cooks, hosts, GMs, waiters, you name it. 25 kids, the very first meeting. Wow. Can you tell us what those meetings look like? I think that sometimes these topics 
or meetings can be intimidating for people who are feeling like maybe they need some need some support. So can you walk listeners through kind of what to expect at a meeting and what that looks like to make it maybe a little less intimidating? Absolutely. You know what it looks like? I always say it looks like a kitchen. A bunch of F and B people sitting around shooting the shit and swearing a lot. It sounds just like a kitchen. We are uh, a very loose flowing organization. Our meetings start with the preamble. We then have a leader of the meeting uh, talking about a particular subject in regards to their sobriety in the industry. How did I stay sober when I had to go behind the bar the first time after deciding to become sober? What do I do with myself at 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning when everybody else is out partying and I'm going nuts and I'm alone? How do I deal with the stress of a kitchen on a Saturday night when the chef is screaming, pick up, pick up, pick up, and the tickets are lined on my board? And then we go into more personal issues, like how do I cope in a sober world? How do I cope sober in a world where all around me, there are those who are flaunting their alcohol and their drugs? It's relaxed, it's free-flowing, it's very welcoming and very warm, and no reason it should frighten anyone other than their own fears of being able to get sober or not. That's great. I think for so many in this industry, just knowing that there are other people going through what they're going through and having that empathy and being able to share it on an even level with them is, is important. How do you how do you deal if, if in one of these meetings, you realize that there are some very acute cases, someone is, is struggling very mightily. How do you, how do you help prevent that, that next awful step? If you think that that's something that's, that's imminent. You know, something we rally plain and simple. It's, it's in a, and, and I always use restaurant analogies. You're in a kitchen. It's Saturday. Your station is overwhelmed. You can't keep up. What do you do? You ask for help. We rally around newcomers. We inundate the newcomer with phone calls. We take the newcomer out to other meetings. We take the newcomer out to lunch. We sit with them. We, in each city, the people who make up the Ben's Friends community truly rally around the person who's struggling. We also are very open that some people need more help. I mean, I couldn't have just quit without killing myself from DTs. You know, you've got people who are drinking a full bottle of vodka a day and doing whatever drugs they're doing. Stopping cold turkey can be truly deadly. And so we're really good to connecting people who are in that state with the proper medical treatment that they need to wean themselves off of alcohol. On the Zoom meetings, it's last night I was at the 10 o'clock meeting on Zoom and there was a new guy and in the chat, in the chat, 15 people put their phone numbers in and said, Brandon, call me, call me, call me. And when Brandon put his phone number in, I guarantee you everybody wrote it down. And since last night, he has probably gotten 10 phone calls to talk him through while he's struggling, 
not picking up a drink. Oh, that's phenomenal. For our operators or maybe even a, a, a manager who might be listening to this podcast, what are what are some of the signs that they should be looking for so they know if and how they can be a resource, how they can help here? That's, that's a great question, and I thank you for it, because the reality is Ben's Friends not only wants to help the recovering person, we want to help the owners. In my day, even though I was sober, if somebody showed up at work drunk, I have to be honest, back then we used to say, get the hell out of here, you're done. That can't happen anymore for two reasons. One, a sheer selfish reason is that employers can't afford to lose anybody in this day and age. So it's incumbent upon them to learn how to deal with the, the person who's struggling. Signs that you look for, the great employee all of a sudden is coming in disheveled all the time. All of a sudden, the employee's late. All of a sudden, the employee's disappearing off the floor or off the line for five minutes, and you don't understand where they're going. All of a sudden, the employee who was always great starts becoming short with colleagues, starts becoming short with uh, irritable with guests. There are so many different signs. And the important thing for the employer to do is not lash out, but start asking, what's going on? How can I help? A great employer would hand a flyer of Ben's friends. How do you like that for a plug? Uh, to the employee and say, you know what? I know you're struggling. I want to help you. Here's an organization or go to AA but let us help you. Let us help you get back to the person you are. We have to stop the attitude that says you're done, you're out of here, you know, shame on you, goodbye. That can't happen anymore. We need to care. Uh, Steve always says this, and I now picked it up. We need to care as much about our employees as we do about our guests. Think about it. We bend over backwards to create experiences for our guests. That's our job. Why aren't we bending over backwards to help those who help us do that? I think that's a really good point. And, you know, people will want to work for a manager, an operator, an organization who, who cares about the, the person and has a resource such as Ben's friends, you know, it could be an employee benefit for lack of a better term to say, right. we have these resources that we provide to you because we care about our team to address, you know, part of that workforce situation as well. Well, Mickey, we're going to put it in the show notes, but you talked about that. You made the half joke about the plug. We let's, let's get that out there. What, what, what is the website? Where should be, people be going who are uh, listening and find this to be of great value and want to be able to utilize Ben's friends? Well, honestly, if you just go to Google, uh, there's a thing called Google. If you didn't know, it finds everything. I'll look if into you it. go to Google, you type in Ben's Friends, and we're the first thing that pops up. The, e the website is Ben's Friends Hope. There's also a link to uh, for emails. We get emails maybe 25 a day people asking for help around the country or people asking to start a chapter. So we respond to every email that we get. Come to the website. 
You can click a button and go to a Zoom meeting. You don't need to be seen. You can uh, stop your video if you want, if you're uncomfortable, and then keep coming until you're comfortable. But bensfriendshope.com. Excellent. And what about, so let's say we have listeners in Grand Rapids or Ann Arbor or Traverse City, some of these great restaurant towns, Marquette, let's not leave the UP out of this, that want to create their own chapter. Is that something that's possible? Uh, Absolutely. You know, we have some requirements. They're very modest. Number one, the person, we need two people for each chapter. Both people need to be in F&B and they also need to be sober at least a couple of years. That's the first set of criteria is. The second criteria is they need to come to our national Zoom meetings for a while on a regular basis to get a feeling of what Ben's Friends is. You know, there's AA out there, which we are adamant supporters of. I would be dead without AA. So we're big supporters of, but AA has a lot more structure and a lot more formality, and quite frankly, a lot more God talk. You know, a 24-year-old line cook is a rule, is not that comfortable in a room filled with 70-year-old white men like me, you know, that we don't talk their language. So I think I got distracted, but yeah. And then just send me an email on the website that you're interested in starting a meeting, and I will respond to you as soon as I get it. That's great. Yeah. Michigan's a big state. Um, and I can definitely see some more chapters wanting to uh, come up through through this conversation. Mickey, let me ask you this. Have you seen we we uh, we talked through the pandemic far too much on it, on this podcast and, and its impact both in the immediate term, but also long term to this industry. Have you seen has this issue been made worse by the pandemic? Are you seeing more cases of substance abuse in the industry driven driven by the pandemic and the challenges, the additional challenges that come with operating in this environment? Well, if you look at the government figures, we just had the biggest year in history for drug overdoses. That's, that's, that's a fact. Um, we think about it. Isolation is the greatest threat to any addict. And think about the first months. Michigan was one of the states that was very, very strict. Charleston, South Carolina opened up as if nothing happened way, way, way back. I mean, I think by August of the first year. No, even before. Michigan was very tight. So you're somebody who drinks. You're somebody who drinks, you're somebody who drugs, you're living in an apartment, you don't have a job, you're by yourself, what are you gonna do? You drink and you drink and you drink. The amount of people that we saw come into Ben's Friends, the amount of people I know around the country that started getting sober due to the excessive drinking the first six months of the pandemic, it is greater than at any time in my 40 years of sobriety. No, you're so right. I, I don't have the exact statistic in front of me, but in a year where on-premise consumption was almost nil because we were closed for so long, uh, both in the spring and then later in Michigan again in the November, December period, 2020 still had the highest consumption rate of alcohol ever in its history, breaking all records 
all of that coming from people buying off premise and, and, and drinking at home. And so you are, you are right. That, that impacted a lot of people, but I think uh, certainly impacted this industry disproportionately. You know, to give you a figure that always is in my mind, the president of one of the national liquor companies or, or distribution companies, wine and liquor, we were talking back then. He said, Mickey, 28% of my customers are completely shut down and we are 43% ahead of our best year ever. Mm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That puts it into perspective. Definitely. Well, we can't thank you enough for everything you've done to help create uh, an avenue and a voice to such a challenging reality in this industry. And, and we're going to do our best to make sure we we make that voice heard and share these resources because they're critical, they're important now more than ever. But I don't just want to leave on that. You are a lifer in this industry and have a couple stories. Talk, talk. maybe give your, your, your one best story from Tapawingo and, and tribute for those listeners who might not know the in those locations specifically. You are right. And it is our terrible omission at the beginning that we didn't include them because uh, they really are special places in the in the lore and history of fine dining in Michigan. So, Vicki, the floor is yours. I, I, what are you looking for, Justin, in particular? Anything? What 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 did what was created in Tapawingo? Were, were these were these places ahead of their time? Uh, do you uh, see things Tap, that have followed Tap, that are similar? Tapawingo, and and I don't want to sound arrogant. But Tapawingo has been closed for years, and there I still get customers regularly sending out, hey, how are you? I'll never forget what you guys did there. Tapawingo was the first place in Michigan where we, I say with great pride, even though we were up north, our relationship with the Michigan chefs of that time in the fine dining world was extremely strong. You know, Brian Polson, Keith Famey, Ed Janos, Peter Lauren, Milos Chalka, all of the greats of that, of that time. And we were the first restaurant to bring them all together. And we created a chef series that went on and started all around in the country. We did, we did the greatest chefs in America would fly to this little town of 400 people, Ellsworth, Michigan. We had Daniel Ballou, Tom Colicchio. I mean, the superstars of the hospitality industry come to us to do dinners and spend time in the North Michigan woods. Tapawingo is a place of magic, eight acres, a private lake that two swans controlled and would swim by the windows every day, flower gardens that were uh, photographed for magazines. It was magical. It was just, I mean, to this day, I constantly hear from people about the magic that was Tapawingo. Tribute, I think, tribute. You know, Johnny Apple, the absolutely legendary uh, gourmand, he was a senior political correspondent for the New York Times, but his passion was food, and he wrote food reviews. Johnny Apple said to me, it was the single greatest 
Tribute was the single greatest restaurant anywhere between New York and LA. He said there was nothing to compare. Takashi Yagahashi was the chef. He and I uh, had complete control of the place. We didn't own it, I want to say, but we had complete control, which was part of my deal there. And it it attracted people from all over the world, not just the country, because of how honestly, it was a magnificent restaurant. So I got to ask in both these cases, because you described them perfectly, everything runs its course, but why did each one of these close? Well, Tapawingo, it was time for me. You know, I was, I, I joined Tapawingo. I was not the original owner. Pete Peterson was. And later on, I became a partner. But I did it when I was still searching in early sobriety. And I felt that being up north was a safer place than being in a city. And Tapawingo eventually ran its course for me, not the restaurant, but the area. Um, a family kept hounding me to create tribute. I put them off for probably two years. But there came a time when living up north in the winter was not, it, it, it was now, I was past needing to do that. And though I hated leaving Tapawingo, Pete and I are still extremely close. Um, it was just time. And then Tapawingo closed, honestly, due to the 08 recession. You know, that, that area up there in 09 was hit brutally with an economic downturn that lasted, as you all know, a couple of years. And it just was too hard to hold the seasonal restaurant. Mickey, can we end this uh, this interview with a lightning round of questions? Of course. Uh, my <laughs> brain is good with lightning. This is this is Emily's creation. It's brand new. We have not done this. No guest has been subjected to this yet. So you are the first. Good luck and Godspeed. Thank you. All right. What's your go-to place to visit in Michigan? Lidlinaw Peninsula with the wineries. And even though I don't drink, it's just magnificent up in that area. Good choice. What's the last show that you watched or streamed? We crashed with Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway, the story of the oh. rise and fall of WeWorks. And I reckon Jared Leto was mind bogglingly good. I need to check that out. Actually, Apple, Apple TV guy. I like that. Uh, yeah. And actually, I just heard a thing on a TV show. Anne Hathaway said, she worked with him for six months and never met him because for the entire six months, he stayed in character of the guy, Adam Newman, that he portrayed. Jared Leto. That's interesting. I yeah, had no yeah. idea he was a character actor. This is yeah. going in a great direction. I had no idea this was coming. Perfect. He, he's an interesting guy. All right. Uh, text or phone call. What's your preference? What the hell is with the text? <laughs> um Honest to God, you got the phone in your freaking hand. Call me. That's a good take. That's a good take. Uh, what's the last song that you listened to? Uh, this morning, I wake up every single morning and play a song and send songs to different sober people. But this morning, I played the first song I played was Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes. Okay. Nice. That's a good one. In your eyes, the, well, the floor is yours. If you want to go, 
full verse. I'm not stopping you, but I think I, I think my last question. (laughs) All right. Last one. What's your favorite type of restaurant to visit as a consumer? You know what, Emily, it breaks my heart to say that the restaurants that I want to visit are all dying. I still, I, I was going to Chicago a couple of ago to, to take my niece to dinner and her new boyfriend. And I struggled to find a restaurant with tablecloths, with proper menus, with great china and silver and glassware. You know, we've gone to hardwood tables paper napkins, paper menus. I still like a degree of over-the-top service. I like art in my restaurants, warmth, fabrics, colors. I want people to, I want to go to a restaurant where I walk in and it's more than just a dinner. It's an experience. And unfortunately, due to all of the world today that's dying it really is dying you know everything's the hip industrial you know we got the pipes on the ceiling and the wood tables and the uncomfortable chairs and you know everybody's doing a charcuterie tray and you know and and burnt brussels sprouts it's it's you know i think that's part of my age i remember when you walked into restaurants and you were in awe the moment you step through the door to what you were seeing. That's my favorite type of restaurant to go. Okay, last question. And I'm adding this, Emily, Emily doesn't even know it, but you are wearing a Detroit Tigers t-shirt, sir. So I want to know who is your favorite Detroit Tiger of all time? I hate baseball. <laughs> <laughs> I hate baseball. I'm not a fan, but I'm a fan of Detroit. And so somebody sent it to me and I thought it would be appropriate to wear so your guests could see it. I love it. I, the most unexpected answer we could have had. But the most honest. I, I'll the tell most you, honest. I, I used to serve Tom Monahan all the time. Well, now I don't want to go here. Forget it. <laughs> Mickey Bax, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for doing what you do to help this industry. And thank you for being a leader in this industry for multiple generations. And I want to add one last thing. If anybody is interested in starting a chapter, as I said, we're in New Buffalo, we're in Detroit, we will come to you, we will help you, we will do everything we can, promote you, Um, just find me two sober people in your market. Yeah. And the MRLA is happy to help uh, make that connection as well to any members or non-members of the association who, who want to get started and make that connection. So we're happy to help. Thank you, Emily. And I hope I did everything you hoped for. Mickey, you nailed it. You are, you are a natural. I appreciate you being here and making the time. Thank you both. 